If you have, um, oh, I guess middle school age kids, should probably know, middle school age kids, uh, Mr. Brandon is going to be leading our middle school age kid class there in the back of the room. We'd love for you to be a part of that if you're of that age group. Um, hopefully our elementary age kid classrooms will be open here pretty quickly um, and we can get everything kind of rolling back in that direction. But like I mentioned during announcements, we do need some volunteers, so if you are interested in signing up for a Sunday a month, we'd love to have you do that. Just put your name on that list and Miss Logan will contact you. It's out there on our kids' check-in desk and uh, we'll get you connected and at least have a conversation what that might look like. So of course this season's been hard for all of us. It's, it's been a challenge. Every one of us has sort of had different issues and things that we've wrestled with over the season and, and we're no different. Um, so I've got a special needs dog. Um, that's, that's true. And she's not special needs in the normal sense of like she's got maybe three legs or whatever. She's just old and has a lot of issues. And so she's 11 and she, we got other dogs, but she's 11 and she's a schnauzer named Fiona. And uh, over this COVID season, Fiona started having all kinds of crazy issues like seizures. And she'd be, dog seizures, kind of funny. It's awful. It's terrible. It's horrible. But it's also kind of, you're like, you don't know what to do. And so we went to the vet and we're like, our dog just shakes a lot and falls down. And she's like, well, she probably has a brain tumor. Like, so matter of fact. I was like, oh. Okay, like, you know, what, what, do we, what do we do about that? She's like, well, you don't want to operate on it, and she's old, and so you probably just need to give her some doggy medicine, and we'll hope that that works, some doggy epileptic pills or whatever. Or she said she could have epilepsy, but we don't really know. And so I'm like, oh, well, I'm glad we're having this conversation, doctor. And so she says, here, take these. So we take these pills home, got to cut them up and do all kinds of things, and it doesn't really work. Dog's still struggling. It's sad and terrible. So we go back to the vet, we're like, maybe it's time for her final fetch, right? Like, she's just going to she's gonna go out there and be with doggy Jesus or whatever. So it's like, it's, maybe it's time to let go. And the vet says, no, no, we got, we got something else we can try. We got her a little something a little bit stronger. She said, the challenge, though, is that these are real people pills. They're not, I can't give them to you. So you're going to have to write your script. You got to go to the actual pharmacy and... Um, and get these prescription pills filled. So I said, okay. I said, that's fine, no big deal. We, we, you know, I know right where the Walgreens is. They called us out, called it in, did all that deal. I go to Walgreens, and the, the, the pharmacist says, sorry, we can't give you these pills. Um, and I said, well, why? My dog shakes a lot. And they're like, well, we can't give them to you because the person that prescribed them, whoever your doctor is, needs a license from the DEA. Uh, it's a heavy narcotic. And I was like, oh, okay. And she goes, and we need your license. we got to take all your information. But you need to call your doctor and uh, tell them to update their DEA license. And I was like, okay, this is what I wanted to do today. So that sounds great. So I, I called the vet, who I, I'm now realizing that not only does my pharmacist not know this is a dog, doesn't know it's coming from a vet, right? They think this is like a, a physician, physician. And so I call him and I was like, hey, your doggy DEA license or what? I don't really know what's happening here, but you can't, you got to do something else. And so the guy was like, oh, I, I think I know what happened. Ours lapsed or whatever. Oh, okay, sure. I'm sure we don't do a lot of prescribing or narcotics for hamsters or whatever. But anyway, I said, he said, we'll call it in. So my vet ends up having to go back and taking some kind of crazy class. Okay, so she has to go take this class to get her license to prescribe us these pills. They're ultimately just prolonging my dog, right, from the inevitable. And so finally get all that done. I go back to the, the, the Walgreens and I go to the script and they say, oh, man, these are these, we've got them. They're really powerful. Um, we need your license. They take a bunch of information. That your DEA is basically going to start a file on you. Um, and you probably need to wear gloves when you handle these. And I was like, what? They're like, yeah, it's a really heavy barbiturate. You just, you know, whatever. And, and he goes, how old's the patient? And I'm still remembering now that I'm not 100% sure we're on the same page. And I said, well, 11. 
And he was like, hang on, 11? And I go, yeah, I mean, it depends. We don't really know when she was born because, I mean, the guy that gave her to us was like, her birthday was in March sometime. So I'm thinking 11? And he goes, you mean you don't know her birthday? And I was like, no, do you know your birthday? And he's like, yes. And I was like, well, I guess I should. That's my bad, right? I'm sorry. Again, I'm not even registering that we're having this conversation. And he goes, okay, well, I need to talk to my supervisor. I'm like, why? I've literally been to the DEA checkpoint. My vet's been to the DEA checkpoint. I bought a box of gloves. Like, what else could we possibly do? So the pharmacist comes over. and He's like, sir, how are you? He's like, I need to ask you a couple questions. These are heavy narcotics or whatever. And, and we're not sure they're fully suited for the use that you've got. I was like, well, my doctor prescribed them or did I, whatever. And he's like, but for an 11-year-old, this dose is incredibly high. I was like, well, really, she's like 77 if you do the math. And he's like, what? I was like, well, yeah, I mean, she's a freaking old dog, dude. He was like, it's a dog? And I was like, her name's Fiona. Like, yes, it's a dog. It's a schnauzer. I, I don't know. They're, he's like, well, why don't you get these from the vet? I'm like, my gosh. My vet didn't have a DEA license. We're at the Walgreens. It's a long story, all kind of shaken down to this idea, right, that here I am getting doggy narcotics, And the DEA now has a file on me, which may not be the first, by the way, but they have a file on me. And so I'm telling these things to air them to say, this is what coronavirus is doing in our family, right? Other people like job loss and real struggles. We have now handling narcotics at our house uh, for our dog that has a shaky problem. And apparently, um, I am now under suspicion. So Biden or whoever is in charge, they've got our information. I just feel like I should put that out there because I need somebody else to know in case they kick our door in in the middle of the night or whatever. So every night, my dog gets a little turkey roll-up where you got to make it because she has no teeth. They've all fallen out. This is a really sad case. you got to roll up a little turkey roll-up with a little narcotic in there. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a real treasure at our, our house. So any of you got dog-setting plans over spring break, we need your help. It's a hands-on job at our house. So. So, but the unexpected things in life like that are really what make things kind of fun. We've spent a lot of time in our house laughing at and about our dog, Fiona. She's brought us a lot of joy, but, you know, we've thought a lot about the unexpected things that the season has brought us and that we've found a lot of joy in them. Even though it's been challenging and difficult and all those kind of pieces, the unexpected nature of these things has been, has been really good for our souls. Like, it's been challenging with school and at home, and I've got a daughter at OU and a son that's trying to navigate being 15 and learning from home and all those kind of things. But the unexpected moments that God has given us have been really powerful. And this week I actually had several of those. So the reality is, is that this season has been very different. Usually my life is filled with, the weeks are filled with a lot of hanging out with people, a lot of deep conversations, a lot of coffees and lunches and things like that. And this year really has taken a lot of that away. A lot of those things have been exchanged for text messages and just sort of checking in on people with emails. But this week I spent about four different occasions with people that kind of just opened up this really deep sort of longer set of conversations, which was really, really good for my soul because it had been such a long time that I've had all these opportunities just to engage with people. One of the greatest privileges of being able to be anyone's pastor or even in this kind of role at all is the privilege of being allowed into someone's life, whether it's good or whether it's a difficult time or whatever, the incredible privilege of someone being able to share their story with you. And so this week was, I was really privileged, but what I was reminded of during this week was that Jesus still heals. I mean, he really does. As difficult as things have been and as challenging as they may have been, we have a God who still heals. And he always heals in an incredibly personal way 
And it's never on script, meaning it never follows this formula. It's always unexpected. And in those unexpected moments with the Lord are where we see a ton of beauty. And so oftentimes our inconveniences are God's incredible unexpected moments in which he moves and teaches our heart. And so this morning, in light of some of these things, I thought I wanted to explore one of those instances in Scripture. One of those incredible healing moments where Jesus deals in the unexpected, goes off script, and has this profound healing moment with someone that I think speaks directly to where I am and hopefully where you might be this morning. So if you got your Bible, I want you to open up to John chapter 9. Um, one of my favorite healing miracles, there's another one in Mark chapter 7, which I love, but John 9 is one that I love dearly because of just that truth. It's this sort of deeply personal and unexpected um, kind of powerful moment that Jesus has with somebody that I think echoes truths across all of our lives. So as we get ready to open the word, let's take a moment, let's pray, let's ask God to teach our hearts, and then we will unpack it together this morning. Lord, I do thank you just for the beauty of being able to gather here with people. We recognize, Lord, that not everybody across our country and world has this privilege. Lord, whether it's because of the pandemic or just because folks live in a country where this kind of gathering is not permitted, Lord, we have taken it for granted. And yet we have this incredible privilege of being able to just be together and open your word and worship. Um, Lord, we're created to live and be in community. And uh, Lord, that's been been something that a lot, of, a lot of us have longed for and have missed, and even many more in our community that aren't feeling comfortable or able to come back, Lord, we pray that you would uh, draw them into community at some point in time and some place to knit our souls together. Lord, we do open up your word this morning, and we recognize that without your Holy Spirit, not only do we not understand, but Lord, we can't be instructed, and so we ask that your Holy Spirit would teach our hearts, that we would have an encounter with your living word, the Theopunestos, the very breath of God. It's what you call scripture. And so, Lord, we ask that you would speak to us through that. An encounter with your word is an encounter with you. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask the Lord to teach you this morning. Whatever he needs to show you or just open up for you, just ask the Lord to teach your heart this morning. Lord, we need you to teach our hearts. We can't discover you on your own, our own. We don't come to you on our own. You are the drawer of people. You are the revealer of truth. Take a moment where you sit and just pray for somebody else. Pray to, for the person beside you or behind you. Pray that God would move in them, that he would teach them. Be in the habit of praying for other people. Every single week we say the same thing. Be in the habit of praying for other people. Everything that unfolds here on a Sunday morning is not about you. Ask God to move in the life of the people around you. Lord, we turn our entire morning over to you. We ask that you would teach our hearts and instruct us in truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So John chapter 9, Jesus is walking with the disciples. He had just made a pretty powerful proclamation about himself in John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, Jesus essentially calls himself the great I am. Basically putting himself on par and equal with God, saying, I am the I am. Essentially what God calls himself in the book of Exodus. How he declares himself to the people of Israel. Jesus makes the illusion that the great I am is who he is and there he and the Father are one. And so he's made these powerful claims and he's walking with the disciples. And this is the encounter that we see happening. As he went along, 
he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. This happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground and made some mud with saliva and put it on the man's eyes. And he said, go. He told him to wash in the pool of Siloam. The word means scent. And so the man went and he washed and he came home seeing. And his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, no, he only looks like him. But he himself said, no, I am the man. How then are your eyes open, they demanded. And he replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and he put it on my eyes. And he told me to go to Shiloh to wash. So I went and I washed and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. So this is this incredible encounter that Jesus has with this guy. They're walking into the city and they walk past this man who they have learned has been born blind. So obviously they knew him or the disciples knew him or he had been around enough to where they'd all have encounters with him. Because in those days, if you had a handicap or you were uh, paralyzed or you have some kind of ailment, right, that was essentially a life you were kind of led to. You had to either be a beggar or you had to have a full-time caretaker. There was no job, no center, no places where you get special instruction or any of those kind of things. And so oftentimes it was a, a relegated life of begging. And they had seen this guy before. He'd obviously been there forever. He'd been blind since birth, which means most likely they'd passed him time and time again. And so they walked past this man who they know had been blind from birth. And the disciples are curious. And they asked Jesus. They said, Jesus, who sinned? Did, did this guy sin or were his parents that sinned that God has basically made him blind from birth? Now, it sounds like a crazy question to us. I think we've talked about this on some level before we looked at Mark 7, which is this correlation between sin and handicap. There was a belief in those days that if you had a physical ailment of some kind or you had a handicap or you had a, something that was wrong with you, in quotes, that you were being punished by God. That essentially it was either your sin or your generational sin of your family that has led God to say, I am not pleased with you, and therefore my wrath is being kind of poured out on you. So the idea was not that this guy is blind, let's have pity on him, but instead that this guy had sinned or his parents had sinned and God was punishing him, therefore he is relegated from the community. And so they had the strong belief and tie that physical handicap or ailment was tied directly to spiritual sin. So what it gave people the right to do was to basically say, we don't have to engage with you, talk to you, touch you, be around you, because God already is punishing you, and God already hates you, and even if we come in contact with you, we will be unclean, and therefore your role is simply to be relegated, and anything that we give you, whether it's a coin or a piece of bread or whatever, is just out of the goodness of our heart, because we're better than you. And that's the truth about how people interacted with those that were suffering until Jesus begins to break down all of those paradigms. The disciples say, who sinned? And Jesus says, well, neither sin, nor this man, nor his parents. And he's not saying that they didn't sin like they didn't have, have sin or they're not sinners. He's saying that their sin is not causal. It didn't cause the blindness. He said, he gives them this third option. He goes, instead of those two, this has happened so that God's glory may be revealed. So he said the third option is not that the sin or the blindness is a direct result of this man's actions or his parents' actions. Instead, it's because God is going to demonstrate his glory 
right now in this moment. And then he says, as long as it is day, I must do my work, the night is coming. He's alluding to the idea that he's not going to be walking and doing ministry for that much more longer on the earth. But as he's here as a light of the world, he has a mission and a heart. And this encounter with the gentleman is part of this movement. And he says, basically, this is so God's glory may be seen. And so he goes over to this guy, this blind guy from birth who's probably sitting on the ground. And it says that God, or that Jesus spit on the ground and he made some mud takes this mud, and he rubs it on this guy's eyes. And then he looks at him and he says, I want you to go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is basically on the south side of Jerusalem, cut out of the rock. There was a a pool that was made by King Hezekiah that was massive and major part of the waterway, which most people wouldn't wash in, right? It was part of a, a waterway, not a bathing pool. But he tells this crippled, blind, broken, marginalized person that society tosses out to go and wash the spit and mud in his ailments and basically the water system of the entire city, which is a whole nother amazing piece of this puzzle. But he says, go and wash. And so the guy does just that. He gets up and he washes. And then he just goes home. And he's super matter-of-fact, which I really like. He goes home and the people around him are like, hey, we know you. Aren't you the guy? Says his neighbors were like, aren't you the guy that used to beg? Like, they don't even know his name, right? They're like, aren't you the guy that used to beg? And some were saying, yeah, that's him. And some were saying it's not. And he's like, no, it's, it's me. And they're like, well, how come you can see then? And he's like, I don't know. This guy Jesus made mud, put on my eye, and told me to wash. And so I did. And now I can see. And they're like, well, where is he? He's like, I don't know. I mean, it's like this. I have no idea. I just did what this guy Jesus told me to do. And then he goes on, and Jesus is going to talk about spiritual blindness and some other cool things in John 9. But that miracle moment just sort of ends there, sort of just hangs there. But there's some really powerful things in there that I think are really important for us to see. Because this encounter, this profound healing that Jesus has with this person is much deeper than just, and as it always is with Jesus, than just giving a man his sight. Right? It's this deeply personal, this incredibly unexpected, and this profoundly healing moment that we see. And we know it's personal because it's directly connected to this person who essentially his entire life has been called an outcast. So again, we have this gentleman who we don't even know his name, who has been relegated to being a blind beggar, who the entire community basically has thought God is punishing or God hates them. And most likely he has believed that truth his whole life. I have this thing in me. And this thing that's going on with me, whether it was his blindness in this case, or in John, or Mark uh, 7, it was, a, it was a deaf gentleman. So this thing has caused me to believe because people have told me that God is punishing me. That I have done something wrong, and that something wrong, that sin must have been so deep that God disliked me so much that he caused me to be blind from birth. Or that he disliked my family or my parents so much that he is punishing me. And this is what the world has told me. And that connection was real. And so for the majority of this guy's life, we don't know how old he is, whether he's 15 or 55, we have no idea. But for the majority of his life, he's believed that truth. Or what he thought was truth, that God hates me, essentially. That I'm being punished for either my sin or God hates me so much that he's punishing me for the sin of my family. And it's an incredible thought to think what that might be like to carry that. Now, I've done a lot of things I'm not proud of. Uh, I've got a lot of sin in my life. I've got a lot of hurt and a lot of struggles and a lot of failures over my 39 and some odd years of existence. 
several extra, extra. But I don't know what it would be like to carry the weight of feeling like God hates me. Now, I've, I've felt God being disappointed in me. I've made choices that I believe have led that, but I've, I've always walked in the idea that Scripture promises freedom and forgiveness, that when we confess those things. So even in the disappointed moments where I feel like I have failed, God washes me with this freedom. But I wonder what it's like to carry that much hurt or pain. And so here's that Jesus comes along, and the disciples basically call out with this guy who's hurt his whole life. There's that guy. God hates him, but... Did God hate his parents or does God hate him? Who's in total earshot of all this, right? He's blind, not deaf, so he probably hears really well. Hears them talking about him. Has heard about this Jesus because everybody's heard about Jesus. In fact, when he tells his neighbors, he's like the guy Jesus basically everybody's talking about. Hears them talking about him. The same things that he's heard his whole life, which is something I've done has brought about the hatred of God. And then Jesus' response is so powerful, right, to hear that going, he hasn't sinned. God doesn't hate him is essentially what he's saying. But instead, what you see is this broken part of him is actually going to be used for God's glory. I mean, think about that for a moment, that here you are carrying this pain and hurt your whole life. And the God of the universe, right, the God that hung the stars and the trees, this Jesus that you are hearing is doing all his miracles, has basically said, this is not only not his fault and not his parents' fault, but it's going to be a tool or an instrument of God's incredible glory. And to feel your heart for a moment go from, wait a minute, so God doesn't hate me, but God is going to use my brokenness for something different. I don't know if you believe it at that point in time. He's still blind. But man, to hear it would be something just unbelievable. So God doesn't hate me. This is for his glory. And in that moment, that personal moment, Jesus, I assume, kneels down because the guy's probably sitting and begging. And he spits and makes mud, which is a lot of spit, by the way. And it's so unexpected to me because here's this. Jesus, in, in, earlier in the, in the gospel, turned water to wine with just a word. Jesus heals a satyrian's daughter with a word from miles away. He does not need to do anything. He could simply sneeze or blink or think, and this man would instantly be, he would instantly have his eyesight. But being blind, he does something incredibly personal and unexpected, something audible and something he could feel. So he makes this audible thing where he spits. Now, I don't know how often you spit, but if you do, it's not something you do quietly, especially when you're going to try and get enough spit out to make mud. So this gentleman sitting on the ground hears this Jesus spitting into this little cup of, I guess, mud deal on the ground, makes it with his finger, and he takes that mud and he places it on the eyes. In other words, he touches, right, this guy's eyes. Yeah, sounds that way. Takes spit and he mud and he rubs it across his eyes. Which is really pretty amazing if you start to think about it. If the source of your hurt and your pain was something like that, right? The place, imagine the place in your life the most that you're most ashamed of that you have most hated about yourself or believed that was the most disappointment to the people around you or to even to God himself. And the God of the universe actually looks at you and says, not only am I, I don't hate you, but I will take my healing hand and I will do something very unexpected and I will actually place it in that part of your life 
that hurts so much. To show you that not only do I love you, but I'm willing to go to the places in your life that you hate, that you're ashamed of, and that you hurt from. And so Jesus takes this mud and he rubs it across this guy's eyes in this very tangible way. And then he says, I want you to do something for me. I want you to basically go and wash in the public water supply. Why? Who knows? Mainly because Jesus asks us to do things in obedience, to trust him. So the guy gets up and he washes his eyes in the pool and he can see again. Now, of course, he can, he's healed, right? That's, that's obvious. He can see. In fact, his neighbors are like, hey, man, you used to be the guy. And he's like, I am the guy. And I, but there's got to be a deeper healing here that happens, right? Like, what do you do with that if you're this, this guy, this man? How do you understand or put into context that the place in your life that was so broken and so perceived by the entire world as being a failure, that God, that Jesus touched them, right, told you essentially that they were not the source of anger or hatred or frustration from God, but that this was going to be used for his glory. And in the most unexpected and most personal and most profound way, Jesus heals this man, not just from his blindness, but from the idea that he was hated by God and he was culturally tossed to the side. And that's the unexpected healing, right? Like the healing we see in Scripture is the guy goes from blind to seeing. Awesome, incredible, cool. But what about in this gentleman's heart that goes from, I'm an outcast, God hates me, to I've been used from his glory and God loves me. And as this week, as I was spending time with people, I was really reminded of this truth that God still heals in really unexpected, always deeply personal ways. And it's never the expectation of God just gives sight or when we just pray, God just gives us whatever we ask for. It's always with this deeper undertone of like God is working in our soul that he wants to heal something much deeper or change something much deeper than just what that surface thing is that we've been saying we struggle with. That the God of the universe wants to do something so profound and so deeply healing that it goes underneath all of those other pieces. And we often pray for sight, right? I just don't want to be blind anymore, using that metaphor. I don't want to deal with this anymore. I don't want to have this struggle or pain anymore. And what God is saying is that that area, that struggle, that pain, that peace is actually where I'm going to show you my glory and where I'm going to heal you in a way that you didn't even know you needed because you have been looking at the wrong thing for so long. And I realized this week that a part of my life has been doing just that. I've been looking at the surface saying, God, please do this, please do that. Please heal this, please free this, please, please these things. And underneath the surface all along, I had lost touch with the idea that God is doing a much deeper work in me than I care to admit or imagine. And that God is not as interested in changing just simply my behavior or my thought process or the sinful things that just sort of run through my mind, but he wants to deeply change my heart so that I become a pursuer of who he is. And that the things that I've failed in are actually areas where God's glory can be on full display. And so rather being afraid of them and hiding from them and pretending they're not there, God wants to use them as a way to show the world that he has changed me and that he is always moving and working. 
I think if anything, this season has brought about in me a desire to just see God do something deeper than anything I've ever asked. Because I think a lot of us are hung where this gentleman is hung, right? We just want God to maybe fix the ailment that is just, we can feel and see it's right there. We're just like, God, please take this from me. Take my fear, take my anxiety, take my worry, take this sinful thought, take this sinful behavior, take this thing and just, just fix it. And God's saying, that's not really what I'm doing. What I want to do is I want to heal the deeper portion of that so that you understand not only can you see again, but that you see correctly and you see with beauty and you realize what I'm doing in you. Because it's one thing to see and just have sight. It's another thing to understand that the God of the universe took his hand and he touched the place in your life that was so broken. And then he looks at you and he says, I don't hate you. I love you. And this is the incredible invitation of, the, of someone that is meeting Jesus for the first time, right? That we're, we're walking around not even knowing that we're truly broken, just wishing this one thing. And then the God of the universe sweeps in and he says, I want to rescue your whole soul. When we surrender our entire soul to the Lord, we surrender our heart, we give up ourselves, we realize the beauty that comes from knowing Jesus. He saves us and redeems us from brokenness that we didn't even know we truly had. And for those that are following Christ, for you and me that may have been walking with the Lord for 20 years or 15 years or whatever it may be, the reality is we come to this place where we just want God to heal those blemishes on our skin so that we feel and look better. But God is not interested in the blemishes. Those are what make us who we are. God wants to go underneath and do the deep redemption that makes us look at the blemishes and say, these are marks of God's great glory that I'm not defined by them anymore. I once was that, but I'm no longer. I once was blind, but now I see. The reality of the radical healing of Christ is unbelievable. So here's what I want you to hear this morning. Whatever you're walking through, however deep it may be or shallow it may seem, whatever it is, God still heals. He does the physical, he does the spiritual, he does the emotional, he does it all, he heals that was not something he used to do. It is something that God still does, and he's still actively doing it, and he wants to. That healing is always off script and unexpected. It's never fully in the way that we just simply ask. Now, it may have that result that way, but there's always something deeper at play because God is always interested in your growth and who he is. He's always interested in your sanctification. You're growing to become more like him. He wants to heal the soul where we want to heal the skin. And it's always personal. God always wants to deal with you on a level that says, I love you. I know your name. Even when the rest of the world doesn't, they just call you the man who used to beg. I know your name. I know every hair on your head. I know every dream that you've had and every thought before you think it. I created you. As David says, he knit you together in your mother's womb, meaning he knows every strand of your DNA. And he knows every part of your persona. And the God that knows you that well, right, wants you to understand that he loves you that much. And we cannot disconnect the healing of Christ with the deep love of Christ. Jesus never heals for the sake of healing. He heals for the sake of showing the world that he is deeply in love with humanity, humanity that he made and created. So this morning, whatever it is that you're walking through, dealing with, fighting through, I want you to understand this. Jesus calls us into relationship with him. He wants to heal you from your brokenness. 
That may not always be what you think it is, but he's always working underneath the surface to go deeper, to move, and to draw you. So whatever you're connecting with and feeling like you have blown in your life or let God down or disappointed, the world's going to find out. It's not your label. It's not who you are. God has given you new life in Christ, and Jesus wants to heal in unexpected and personal ways. Let's pray together. God, we thank you just for the opportunity to hear a simple word of truth this morning. Lord, I know it's easy to forget sometimes that you do the miraculous still. You do the healing still. Whether it's physical or spiritual or emotional, God, you are a part of all of it. But you don't treat us as our sins deserve. You don't even label us as our sins label us as. Oftentimes the things that we think we need don't even begin to scratch the surface of what you want to give us. Oftentimes we simply want sight where we can't see. And what you want to do is restore our sense of wholeness. Oftentimes we ask you to fix this one piece, this blemish, this sin, this struggle, this fear, this thing. And what you want to do is restore peace to our whole soul. And so instead of God having us just put out that thing that we just want you to deal with, Lord, lay open our hearts and make them bare. Fix our whole brokenness. Address our identity. And do it in a deeply personal, unexpected ways. Because in those unexpected moments is where the beauty of Christ is truly found. In a way that we never thought you'd show up or never thought you'd speak. And there you are. In every moment, in every breath, in every thought, in every movement, there you are. And so, Lord, we turn our hearts to you. We ask for deep healing from sin and brokenness. We ask for deep healing from identity issues and struggles and fears and failures. We ask for healing from the ways that we've labeled ourselves and the world has labeled us. We ask for healing for the deepest hurts and worries and anxieties. We ask for healing for our lack of trust and disobedience. Most of all, Lord, we just ask you to do in us something that is beautifully unexpected as we surrender our hearts to you. You are the God of the universe, and you still heal. Let's stand together and close our time in worship this morning. Thank you.